All right, we are going to continue in the series uh, we've been in for a month now um, on the church, what the church is, who we are, what that really means biblically. The title of this message is, Now You See Me, Now You Don't. Just a brief uh, few words of review here from last Sunday. Uh, here are some of the main ideas we left off with. The church is corporate in nature, not individualistic. This has to do with our modern Western tendency to want to just go and do our own thing. Uh, me and Jesus can, can work it out. Um, I can be in church wherever I am. Secondly, we cannot say we love our God and at the same time not love his church. We talked of the tendency um, in our society of people to find reasons to separate themselves from the gathering of God's people and do their own thing. And so we discussed this idea. The only one who is positionally justified to separate himself from the church happens to be the very one who has most firmly declared that he never, ever will. He binds himself to us in everlasting covenant, and we should have the same mindset toward one another. This is expressed in this way, the next idea. Our ability to love one another through and in spite of our sinfulness is a proof that we belong to God. And then finally, we got into this key text, Acts 20, 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, one of the words we see God use for his church, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. We see that he bought not just individuals, but he bought a body, a bride for himself through the sacrifice of his precious, sinless blood. That word for the church in the Greek is ekklesia. And we discussed its secular usage literally meant a gathering of people in a public place for a purpose outside of their homes. But then its scriptural use, here is the range of possible meanings. Number one, an assembly of Christians gathered for worship in a religious meeting. Or in the Old Testament, the assembly of the Israelites. Number two, those who anywhere in a city, village, or, or wherever constitute such a company and are united into one body. And then a broader meaning would be the whole body of Christians scattered throughout the whole earth. And then finally, maybe the broadest meaning of the word church, the assembly of faithful, or I'm sorry, yeah, the assembly of faithful Christians already dead and received into heaven. So all believers in all times everywhere, including those who have made their way already to eternity's shore. So we concluded with this point, the church then is the gathered assembly of God's people, one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And we concluded with this verse, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, today we are going to discuss sort of a unique aspect of the doctrine of the church, and that is whether the church is visible or invisible. And by that, I obviously don't mean invisible as like, you can't see me, where'd I go? But this has actually been an important issue the church has worked through in its 2,000 years of history. Remember, the point of this sermon series is for us to develop a good, solid ecclesiology is what it's called. What does ology mean at the end of a word? means the study of, right? So biology, bios is a Greek word that means life, and so biology is very simply the study of life. Theology is the study of God. In the Greek, theos is the word for God, and so theology is the study of God. 
Cosmology. It's the study of the cosmos, the universe. I learned a couple new ologies this week that I thought I'd share with you. Any guesses what kidology is? Kidology. Hey, that's a good guess. Kidology. Goats. That's not correct, but it's a good, good try. Kidology. Oh, was that you, Angie? I looked at Kristen. All right. It's not the study of kids. That sounds weird anyway. Kidology is the study of bluffing or deception. It's derived from the concept of to kid someone, which in older times was a little more than just a lighthearted kidding. It was a deliberate deceiving. Vexillology. I had no idea. The study of flags. Sounds riveting, doesn't it? Vexillology. Who would want to say, hey, did you know I'm a vexillologist? All right, here's my favorite one I discovered recently. And depending on which dictionary you use, you might or might not even find this word because its usage is so rare that not every standard dictionary even includes it. But here it is. Paganology. I will, I will have some fantastic prize if anybody knows what this is. Paganology. Some of you, I think, are well advanced in this, looking out, a few of you in this crowd. It's the study of beards. Beards. A few of you are well along in your paganology studies. The word we learned last week when translated from the Greek that means church is ekklesia. That's the word originally used in the, the first writings, the first versions of the New Testament. It means church, ecclesia, an assembly, a gathering. So if we take that word as the root word and then add ology to the end of it, you simply get ecclesiology. It's just the study of the church. And so I want for you to learn that and get it down deep because that's what we're doing in this series. Now, any decent textbook of theology is going to have a section on ecclesiology, the study of the church. And in that section, you're actually going to find a subsection And it might sound like a silly one, perhaps to some at first, or it might sound like it's hardly worth spending an entire sermon on, but that subsection under the study of the church is whether the church is visible or invisible. The truth is, this has been a vital issue that profoundly affected the church throughout her 2,000-year history. Remember that for about half of Christian history, for about 1,000 years, the dominant Christian church, the dominant expression of the Christian church was Roman Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church. And while many incredible believers lived and even ministered within that body throughout history, the simple fact was, for much of her history, the Roman Catholic Church was stained with great corruption, and much of that had to do with their power that they wielded. Part of that corruption had to do with their insistence that they were what was called the visible church on earth, and they were the only church on earth. And that to not be within their walls was to be eternally damned. That you had to come to God through them on their terms, according to their stipulations, and if you didn't, you were outside the body of Christ. You were accursed by God. And so they very clearly doctrinally believed that the church in its nature is a visible church on earth, and it is them. And if you weren't accepted into this visible church, then again, you were ostracized. And because the church and the state were intertwined, it was very difficult to get along in life if you weren't part of the church because they had power, not just religiously, but they had power politically, they had power socially, civilly, in every conceivable way, they had power. 
And so the church got her way most of the time. And so what began to happen was you had to be baptized according to their laws by their authorities. You had to abide by their sacramental system to be considered a believer. You had to marry on their terms. You had to bury on their terms. And if you didn't follow the stipulated way of of worshiping according to the sacraments, then you would not be given communion. You could not receive communion by the priests. And to not be administered communion was incredibly significant for the average churchgoer at this period in history because if you weren't given communion, you weren't considered to be part of the church, the body of Christ. And therefore, it became very difficult to function in everyday regular society. Because you were on the outside, you were considered to be accursed and condemned. Now, the average person back then, many of them couldn't read. And even for those who could read, it was nearly impossible to have a copy of the scriptures in your own hands that you could read and study. And so, all the average person knew of the scriptures was what the priests and the bishops and, of course, the Pope told them from on high. And so, the average God-fearing person wouldn't go against or question their local church authorities. They submitted, not necessarily because it felt right in the depth of their heart to do so, and not because they felt joyful and free to submit, but they submitted because they were afraid of divine wrath, that to go against the authorities in the church was, according to what they'd been taught, to go against God himself, and was to put yourself at odds with the Almighty. They were afraid of of being punished by God eternally, and so they would submit to whatever local church powers were over them. Now, it's interesting that 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 isn't all this that we've been describing so far. It's not confined just to ancient Roman Catholicism, but this continues to play a part even in the unfolding of modern church history. Um, This quote I'm going to share with you, it's it's a little bit wordy. It's it's a little hard to to make sense of when you first hear it, but I still want to share it with you and we'll kind of sort it out. But as recently as March 25th, 1987, the U.S., National Conference of Catholic Bishops made a statement about what you could call the rest of us, or, or evangelical Christians, which the word evangelical itself has become muddied in recent times. So you could say non-Catholics or Protestants, those that were here because we somehow are, can trace our roots back to the Reformation 500 years ago. So they made a statement about the rest of us that, that says this. These, this conglomeration of bishops stated this. They meaning non-Catholic professing Christians, eliminate from Christianity the church as the Lord Jesus founded it. That's a pretty big statement. And again, this was as recent as 1987, that all non-Catholic professing believers eliminate from Christianity the church as the Lord Jesus founded it. Here's what they went on to say about that. There is no mention of the historic authoritative church, meaning themselves, the Catholic church, in continuity with Peter, who they view as the first pope, and the other apostles. A study of the New Testament demonstrates the importance of belonging to the church, meaning themselves, the Catholic church, started by Jesus Christ. Christ chose Peter and the other apostles as foundations of his church. That's true. Peter and the other apostles have been succeeded by the bishop of Rome and other bishops. The bishop of Rome is another word for the pope. Her phrase. And the flock of Christ still has under Christ a universal shepherd. So what they're saying, I'm going to try to help sort that out for you. What they're saying is the church always and ever was only to be ruled by a universal under shepherd, the Pope himself, and that 
to profess to be a believer or to gather under the name of Christian church outside of the walls of Catholicism is to tear down and work against the work of Jesus himself in establishing his church, which they say is only the Catholic church. So in other words, if all that didn't make sense, the Catholic church believed, and some, and some occasions still believes, that Jesus christened Peter as the first pope, the first bishop of Rome, who supposedly was then the, the start of what would be this unbroken line of popes throughout history that descended from Peter, and the pope speaks for God and speaks God's words, ex cathedra is the Latin phrase, meaning from the throne, from his chair of authority. His words are to be equated with the very words of God himself. He has absolute power under Christ over the local, visible, earthly church. And so to not submit to the church or to the Pope, what they're saying, that is to eliminate from Christianity the church as Jesus intended it and founded it. So what we're getting at here is that for centuries on centuries on centuries and into modern times, the Roman Catholic Church declared in no uncertain terms that to be non-Catholic was to be on the outside of the church, was to be condemned, was to be damned by God. You're on the outside of God's kingdom. Now, in recent times, they've actually softened that stance and they've revised it and they've made some accommodations in their, what you could find on their website today is their current belief on this issue. Um, and I think they made these revisions by necessity because the church and the state no longer are wed and they don't have the ability to wield absolute power over people uh, they have authority over. And so I think it was by necessity that they finally uh, recrafted some of their doctrinal belief on this issue of what the church is and whether it's visible or invisible. But up till very recent times, their, their official position was, and I quote, Outside the Roman Catholic Church, there is no salvation. For the better part of that thousand-year reign that they had, that was their official position. Outside the Roman Catholic Church, there is no salvation. Which meant if you are not a member in good standing, and we aren't administering communion to you, and you're not baptized into this particular church, and you're not performing the sacraments, then you are not a true believer, and you're condemned by God, was the official stance and statement. Again, as I started to say before I so rudely interrupted myself, uh, they have revised this somewhat in, in modern times out of necessity. And so they've now tweaked that statement to allow non-Catholics to be considered true believers under a certain circumstance. And that certain circumstance is if you're non-Catholic due to your ignorance, if you're well-intentioned in your non-Catholicness, non-Catholicity I guess is the right word, um, if it's due to ignorance in your mind or heart, then you're okay. Like, you can still be considered a believer and, and part of the church, just certainly not the way God would prefer it. Now, in case you doubt uh, my summary of, of that current view, I, I pulled their statement itself off their website just yesterday to have on the screen here for you. Um, I think it's catholic.org or catholic.com. You could look this up for yourself. But here's their official position now. And anytime, anytime they refer to the church, they mean themselves, the true church, the Catholic church. So I put that in parentheses. Here's their official position as of today. Salvation comes from Christ the head through the Catholic church, which is his body, basing itself on scripture and tradition. See, that's a key issue of the Reformation, that it's, it's by scripture alone that we find authority for what we believe and how we live. It's not church tradition, Roman Catholic tradition. 
but they hold that those two are equal authorities. If they disagree, church tradition takes the higher hand. Basing itself on scripture and tradition, the council teaches that the Catholic Church, a pilgrim now on earth, here it is, is necessary for salvation. The one Christ is the mediator and the way of salvation. He is present to us in his body, which is the Catholic Church. He himself explicitly asserted the necessity of faith and baptism, and thereby affirmed at the same time the necessity of the Catholic Church, which men enter through baptism as through a door. So to be saved, to receive salvation from God, you have to walk through the door of Catholic baptism is what that's saying. Hence, they could not be saved who, knowing that the Catholic Church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, would refuse either to enter it or to remain in it. So if you've been given the knowledge that the Catholic Church is the only true church on earth, and you decide not to enter into salvation through Christ through the door of their church, then you then no, you cannot be saved still. But they want to clarify something. And here's where they've tweaked their belief in recent years. This affirmation is not aimed at those who, through no fault of their own, do not know Christ and his Catholic Church. Those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and, moved by grace, try in their actions to do his will as they know it, through the dictates of their conscience, those too may achieve eternal salvation. And so their official position is basically, if you're ignorant that we're the only real church, and yet you're well-intentioned, and you mean well in your ignorance, and you're trying to seek God according to your conscience, then we permit you to be saved. Um, we'll, we'll make a provision that you are allowed to receive salvation as long as it's due to your ignorance and you're, you're at least a well a well-meaning ignoramus might be the phrase. So that, that basic stance, essentially that's what it's getting at. If you're not Catholic, you're wrong, but as long as you're sincerely wrong and just ignorant and not wrong by deliberate choice, you can still receive God's grace. Now, 500 years ago, when this issue was much more on the forefront of things, there was much more at stake. The Pope and the cardinals and the bishops they forced their authority on people by declaring, we are the unbroken line of popes and bishops following all the way from the time of Peter. We are descended directly from Peter, and there's no salvation outside of what we recognize and in whom we recognize it. Now, Luther and Calvin and the other reformers, they pushed back on this. Praise God that they did so, because this was a major issue. They pushed back on this, noting how even in the scriptures, there were so many of God's people who cited their lineage. We're children of Abraham. We're in. We are of the people of God because of our ancestry, because of our pedigree, because of our Jewish lineage. We trace our roots back to Moses, back to Abraham, back to David. We're the ones through whom the promises have come. And so we're on the inside. And what did Jesus say? Not all Israel is true Israel. Not all who claim Abraham as their father are truly my people. God said, truly, I could raise up rocks, stones from this ground to be sons of Abraham to worship me. This was what Jesus' position was on this issue. And so, John Calvin uh, very astutely wrote this. 
on the screen here for you. The pretense, you know the word pretense, it means like, you know, a facade, a pretend. The pretense of succession of the bishops is vain, it's pointless, unless their descendants conserve, that is guard, safe and uncorrupted the truth of Christ, which they have received at their father's hands and abide in it. What he's basically saying is it doesn't matter if there's just this sacred long, unbroken line of popes and bishops. What matters is, has you, have you preserved the truth of Scripture? That's our authority. It's the truth that matters, and only the truth that matters. He's basically saying, who cares about titles and lineages? What matters is what the gospel actually is and what God's word actually says. So all these issues are what led for any good theology textbook to have a section under the study of the church of, is the church visible or invisible? What's its true nature? And so I realize this is kind of a unique message. We're kind of getting into the weeds here of, of the study of theology, but I think it's important. I, I didn't want to belabor this and spend three weeks on it, but I wanted to spend one week on it. What do we mean by invisible? This is getting back to the issue we talked about last week. That the church, yes, it, it literally means a gathering of God's people, and so it seems to be visible in that way. But then we have all these other descriptions and statements in Scripture about the nature of the church being spiritual in nature, eternal in nature. These are the issues I'd like to talk about. Remember, I don't have this on the screen, but remember last week I shared one definition of the church from Professor Wayne Grudem. He, he wrote that the church is the community of all true believers for all time, which means many who haven't been born yet and many who have already died and are in the presence of God, which is very much a spiritual reality before all are resurrected or even born. However, we know for certain that there is an aspect of the church that is very much invisible. There's a part of who we are that's an invisible reality and truth. And so it's correct to say, biblically, the church is invisible. That's not all the Bible says, but it's part of what the Bible says. And so the reason that the church, by this definition, is considered to be invisible is that only God, not popes, not pastors, not Sunday school teachers, not bishops, not cardinals, not priests, not anyone. Only God can truly see into the heart and soul of each and every person and know with certainty whether they are his or not, whether they belong to the eternal company of his people or whether they do not. To quote uh, Grudem here again on the screen for you, I do have this one. In its true spiritual reality as the fellowship of all genuine believers, the church is invisible. This is because we cannot see the spiritual condition of people's hearts. We can see those who outwardly attend the church, and we can see outward evidences of inward spiritual change, but we cannot actually see into people's hearts and view their spiritual state. Only God can do that. And so it's not necessarily for the church to dictate through external means, you're in and you're out, and here's how we know, because we've gone through these particular motions in your life, so you're in for sure. No, the Bible, it's, it's a little scarier than that. It says you actually need to look inside your heart and see what the reality is going on there spiritually. Yeah, we would love to just check a few boxes, right? That's why people are drawn to religion. Hey, tell me what to do. Tell me what to pray. Tell me what day to do it on. Walk me through the motions, and then you tell me I know for sure that I'm in, and that, that's a huge relief. I can go about my life. My heart can be running a thousand different directions. As long as I did the things, I'm in. And God says, not so fast. I don't look at the outside. I look at the heart of a person. We see this verse in 2 Timothy 2.19. 
This is written in the context of false teaching in the church. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. What does it say? The Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows who are his. He knows those who are his. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, describing himself along with all others he considered to be believers. He wrote in these terms, Ephesians 2.6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is something he's writing of as though it is present reality. And yet, is it physical yet? Has, has God physically raised us up from death and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places? No, that's a spiritual truth. That's a spiritual reality that applies here and now, yes, but invisibly. Now, one day, praise God, how awesome will this be? It will all be a physical, visible reality. But for now, this part of our salvation and our incorporation into the body, the church, is a spiritual reality. You could say an invisible one. And notice especially, this is interesting, that Paul uses past tense wording. He does not speak in future terms as though one day God will raise us up and one day God will seat us with Christ in heavenly places. No, he says this has already happened. This is done for those who are believers. God has raised you up and he has seated you with Christ in heavenly places. It is a done deal. But since it obviously hasn't happened physically, this is an invisible spiritual reality that is yet presently applicable to our lives as believers. God has already done this. How important then that we live lives that embody these great truths and prove our confession of faith to give evidence, outward evidence of the spiritual internal reality to show that we're associated with his body. How important that we're not living lives where we're professing the name of Christ and yet we look exactly like the world, living lives always in the moral gutters, thinking thoughts just like the world thinks, always stressing and worrying about all the things the world stresses and worries about, no real hope through suffering or through the, the trials of life. Instead, we look just like those who don't have hope in Christ or in the gospel. How important that we show that these realities, invisible though they be, absolutely apply to our lives. Another wonderful passage comes to us in Hebrews 12. Uh, before reading it, I'd like to say just a brief word of context about it. In the Bible, Mount Zion was a literal mountain. It was in the old city of Jerusalem. It was right outside the city gate. It was associated with the city of David, with Jerusalem itself. It represented this is the place where God dwells with his people. Mount Zion was therefore a holy place. It was a holy mountain. But as it concerns the church, his bride, again, God is interested not in the literal, physical, geographical Mount Zion, but in the spiritual version of it. He's interested not so much in the literal geographical city of Jerusalem as in what Jerusalem now represents in the spiritual, invisible way. And that, that's the background to this verse, Hebrews 12, 22. He says to the church, this author writes to the church, to believers, and says, you have come to Mount Zion. Now, are we all worshiping on Mount Zion today? That'd be really cool, actually, but we're not. We're here in Riverton, Wyoming, where it's really cold. And yet he says to the church, you have come to Mount Zion. And I 
firmly believe this is not being written just to those people that read this letter that day, but it's written to us. You all have come to Mount Zion. What could that mean if not an invisible spiritual reality? And then what does he say next? I mean, yeah, we still care about Jerusalem. We still pray for Israel, knowing God has a plan and a purpose for that nation. But what's the greater reality? You are now part of what? The heavenly Jerusalem, which represents the place where God dwells, the place where his people are. It's a, it's a broad spiritual Jerusalem that God has gathered his people as a city of people, the redeemed. That's why it says heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. And then here he uses this word, ecclesia. You've come to the church of the firstborn. Who's the firstborn? It's the standard Sunday school answer. Don't be afraid. No tricks here. It's Jesus. Like 90% of the time, you can say that is the answer to a question. You're going to be right. You know, when the, the Sunday school teacher or the pastor asks a rhetorical question or an actual question. He is the firstborn, meaning he was the first to rise from the dead. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. And it says you've come to him, his church, which is a heavenly Jerusalem, a holy Mount Zion, whose names are written in heaven. Can you see that yet? Have, have you been able to see that visibly, physically, your name written there in heaven? No, not yet. But you've come to God. You've come to him, the judge of all. And here's this word, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So the invisible church is this great company, this eternal company of the redeemed, who at present, only God truly sees them all. Only God truly knows them all. Now, one day, how amazing will this be that all believers will see physically and know every single believer who is a part of his eternal church? That's exciting. That's really awesome to think about. One day we will see it ourselves with our own eyes, the true church, the eternal gathered ones, the bride, the body. For now, the Lord God truly uniquely knows them. So in, in this way, this is what we mean when we say the church is invisible. It's this eternal company that we can't see or know all of them just yet. Which means that any obsession on the part of any church on earth especially those that have political power, any obsession by them to take for themselves the sole prerogative of determining who is in and who is out. And that determination is being made according to physical and visible standards and not spiritual and visible ones. That church should be considered highly suspect because it's not in accordance with what God says on these issues. A couple more succinct statements by uh, Wayne Grudem here on the screen for you. The invisible church is the church as God sees it. Now, as we wrap this message up today, it's important to say that there, there's also an element of the church here and now that is very much visible, and there's a biblical support for that as well. So Grudem goes on and says this, the visible church is the church as Christians on earth see it. Now, that doesn't mean that we see it perfectly always. It means we see it the best we can through the lens of Scripture that God has given us. Because while we cannot know who comprises the church with the same level of certainty that God possesses, we nonetheless are to see one another as best we can through the lens of Scripture to confirm brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And so here's what that looks like. 
If a person professes faith in Christ and has been baptized into him and celebrates communion with the saints, with their brothers and sisters, and they give evidence through their living that there is spiritual life in them and there's power for change in them as God is alive and working in their lives, if there's spiritual good fruit, then we should recognize them as brothers and sisters and members of the body of Christ on earth. We are to do that. And yet, I trust you can see how awful it would be if we at this particular gathering, this assembly, were to make a statement or a determination like this. Only members of Cornerstone Community Church in Riverton, Wyoming, and only those who have followed all of the rules we've put in place regarding involvement in our church, they and only they are the truly saved, redeemed ones on earth, and everyone outside the walls of Cornerstone and Riverton is eternally condemned by God. And if you want to know that you're a part of his true church, you have to come within these walls and do things the way we stipulate that they be done. I mean, can you imagine making a statement? like If I were to make a statement like that, I hope you'd get up and leave, or, or at least come up here and do what St. Nicholas did, like some physical altercation. Heresy! And yet, that's essentially the statement that was made by the dominant church for over a thousand years of Christian church history. And that is one of the greatest corruptions that plagued Roman Catholicism. It had this idea of itself that was not supported in Scripture, that they and they alone were the determiners of salvation. And it was done according to visible means. And yet, I don't want this to make you think that there's not biblically a visible component of the church here and now on planet Earth. There is. That's why we see things like this as the apostles wrote their letters to the churches. Here's how they addressed them. 1 Corinthians 1-2. To the church of God in Corinth. This, this was meant literally, geographically. The gathered assembly of believers there. Or Romans 1-7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Or Galatians 1-2, to the churches in Galatia. Now, I don't need to go through every book of the New Testament. You get the point. This is how they start out. There is a visible part of the church on earth. And so if we were to receive a letter from an apostle, it might begin with the words to the precious people of God at Cornerstone in Riverton, Wyoming. And yet... We certainly wouldn't be justified in taking that to mean we are the only expression of a visible body of believers on the earth. And also, if we were to receive such a letter, would it mean that every single person that walks through these doors is absolutely for sure a believer who will live forever with the people of God? No, it certainly does not mean that. And that's why you have descriptions in the New Testament that in gathered assemblies of God's people, there would be those who everyone affirmed was, was a fellow brother or sister, and yet eventually, over time, revealed themselves to be not of the flock. They couldn't keep it hidden forever, it seemed. Eventually, through some teaching that was false or, or some twisting of Scripture, they would expose who they really were, and the church would recognize this, this one is not of us. This is not a, a true member of the body of Christ. That was done visibly. And so this is frightening, and this should put the fear of God within us as a body of believers. Because what we see then is on the visible side of things, just because a person gathers physically every week with a, a local body of believers, 
just because they appear to be living out their faith, just because they say all the right things, perhaps just because they support the church generously, financially, just because they join an official roster of membership, just because they receive communion on a communion Sunday, just because they've been baptized. And that's a big statement to make, but I'm still believing that's what is meant here. It does not guarantee necessarily that they are truly a regenerate, filled with the Spirit of God, member of the body of Christ who will live forever in this company who are his true church. I think this is clear scripturally. There were those who did and said all the right things who were routinely a part of the gathering of the church and yet eventually were known for who they really were and Paul would call them out for who they were, which was wolves among the sheep. Those wolves were from within the body of believers. They were false teachers creeping in to destroy the flock from the inside. And so that verse I referenced at the beginning of the message, I want to, as we wrap things up here, I want to go back to it and give you a little more context now. Let's back up before verse 19. We read this in 2 Timothy 2.16. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. It's very vivid. And then, this is terrifying, they get called out by name. And the only thing that's going to endure forever from planet Earth is what? God's word. Everything else is going to be destroyed and God will recreate a new heavens and new earth. But his word will endure forever. And these few names that are mentioned, they're immortalized in scripture as those that came within the body and were corrupting it from inside. Hymenaeus and Philetus, what does he say? Who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. I don't take that to mean must have moral perfection from the moment they confess Christ afterward or else I'm doomed and I'm guessing all of you are doomed with me. But you'll notice that on almost every occasion that wolves are referenced in the New Testament, it doesn't have to do with moral struggles of the flesh within the body. It has to do with teaching that's contrary to the gospel. Now, that's not to say that our moral sin issues don't matter. They do. And Paul wrote to a congregation who was tolerating gross sexual sin, incest, just letting it go on openly. He said, you need to actually put those people out of the body, out of the fellowship, as though they're unbelievers. Why? Because there are times where the, the moral side of things is so significant that it, it can impact whether visibly we affirm one another as believers. However, most of the time in Scripture, when you read of wolves and, and all these things that have to do with the true church and the false church, most of the time it's in the context of the teaching, of what the actual profession of truth and faith is. And I, I, I say all that because in modern times we've also fallen into this trap of wanting to always pick apart everyone and, oh, this person has struggled with this little sin or that person said that or they did this. I don't think they're even really a true Christian. You know, I've, I've seen churches and believers get swallowed up in that trap and that temptation to always want to be being the one who's saying who's in and who's out, and that's, that's usually not for us to do. But there are some circumstances in the Bible that were so extreme that Paul said, yes, if, if they're not willing to repent and the whole church is, is confronting them with this, this issue, then put them out of the fellowship, yes. 
Acts 20, verse 29 and 30. I know that after I leave, Paul wrote, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. 1 John 2, 18 through 19. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, which means at one point they were part of the visible church. But were they truly part of the invisible church? No, they were not. Therefore, they went out from us, but they, they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So we're to do our best to receive one another by a good confession of faith in Christ, by being baptized into his name, by receiving communion together with his people to celebrate his, his presence with us and his coming again, by the evidence of our lives that his spirit is at work, helping us to, to have lives that reflect that we love him and are changed by him. That's the visible part of the church, but friends, there comes a time eventually that the invisible, no one else knows it or sees it until finally it's revealed in some way. And that might not happen this side of heaven in every case. It did in the New Testament on several occasions, but that, not, that might not always happen until God sorts all things out at the end. What's frightening is that these kind of people John is describing, sometimes they know their Bibles really, really well. Really well. Sometimes they have very charismatic personalities and they gain rapport with people very quickly and effectively. Sometimes they draw many followers after themselves, but eventually they will be shown for what they are in this life or in the life to come. In the meantime, we're to do our best to recognize brothers and sisters in the faith as best we can through the lens of Scripture. Jesus warned us to do this. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Again, this is in the context of teaching in the church, in the community. Watch out for false prophets, false teachers. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. As best as we are able, we are to look at the evidence that the Bible says to look at. Again, not picking each other apart to the death over small, petty things, but primarily with the truths we uphold and in the way that's reflected in our lives. We are to look through those lenses and embrace brothers and sisters who are giving these evidences that the Bible says indicate they're a part of the invisible body. One commentator wrote this, we could say today that the visible church is the group of people who come together each week to worship as a church and profess faith in Christ. Are there times when there were those who appear that way aren't really of the body? Yes, there are those times, but we're to, to move forward in this way. With the true church, I hope what you see now is that it's, sometimes it's now you see me, sometimes it's now you don't. The church is both invisible and visible. How glorious that one day it will be all visible, all sight, forever, sight, and knowing, full knowing. Lord, thank you for your truth, and thank you for these words. 
Thank you that you've brought us close to you. Thank you that you've loved us with an unfailing love, with an unconditional love. Even while we were yet sinners, you poured your love out on us. Lord, your word says, you say of yourself in your word, that not just that you're loving, but that you are love. And that's the, the basis of your true church, the body of believers you're drawing together to be with you forever. It's that you've loved and accepted us in spite of our sinfulness. Your grace has overcome us, Lord, and we thank you for it. God, I pray that you'd protect us, um, help us to guard against our own flesh, help us to guard against our own unfaithfulness, but guard us as well from always looking out at others and wanting to be needlessly judgmental and, and try to make determinations that are not ours to make. Help us to rejoice when there are those who profess your name and give evidence that their life embodies that profession. Help us to receive one another graciously as members of the same body, brothers and sisters who will be together forever. Thank you, Lord, for the ways in which your church is visible. Thank you for the ways in which it's invisible. Thank you that you're a God who is infinitely fascinating and interesting and have given us more than we could ever possibly contemplate in the short time we have on this earth. Help us to spend our time wisely and faithfully. Give us grace, I pray, in all the times we fall short. Uh, we love you and we thank you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.